Take your Bible to Exodus chapter 20 tonight. Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We'll be considering the first of ten commandments from Exodus 20 verses 1 to 3. Exodus chapter 20. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The Ten Commandments are some of the most well-known scripture in our world today. The last few decades as America has moved into more of a postmodern society, the Ten Commandments have taken on a more center stage in political debate. Questions such as, should the Ten Commandments be displayed in public places are debated and have been debated and even have been litigated in America. And even beyond the scope of our current times, the Ten Commandments have been tremendously relevant in political history. As an example, uh, King Alfred in the 800s, King of England, who had an outsized influence on the development of English common law, uh, issued what was called the Doom Book, the Doom Book, which was their book of law at that time. And the Doom Book was heavily influenced, was almost entirely built upon the Ten Commandments as well as the other biblical principle, an eye for an eye. And nobody here would disagree that the Ten Commandments are, are a great cornerstone of a healthy society. The Ten Commandments succinctly tell us to place God at the center of our lives, and to treat our neighbors fairly. And it sounds simple, doesn't it? And that's because it is. And in fact, in life, it's sin that complicates things. It's not the law of God. It's when we disobey God that, that complication gets introduced. But when we obey God, there is peace and joy and simplicity. I mean, wouldn't it be nice to live in a world where covetousness was discouraged rather than encouraged on every advertisement that you see? Wouldn't it be wonderful if adultery was prohibited rather than encouraged and dealt with lightly in our society? And wouldn't it be great if worshiping the Lord on the Lord's Day uh, did not have a stigma attached to it, but in fact, if you didn't worship the Lord on the Lord's Day, there was a stigma associated with it. Now, you might disagree if you're a hardcore libertarian whether or not the Ten Commandments should be prominently displayed in public. But you cannot disagree that the Ten Commandments are a great foundation of society. But even with this understood, and I think universally agreed amongst us here, the question always comes up, what is the believer's relationship with the law? And we can affirm the wisdom of the Ten Commandments and yet still ask that question. It's a valid question to ask. And fortunately for us, the New Testament is very clear on this issue. We are not under the law. In Romans 6, it actually says that explicitly. Romans 6, 14, ye are not under the law, but under grace. Romans 7, uh, verse 6 says, but now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. And those two verses are really representative of the whole of the New Testament teaching on this issue. We are not under the law. Now, some have taken those verses and they have distorted the meaning, the interpretation of those verses to say that because we are not under law and because we are under grace, there is no standard of living for the believer. 
there is no standard of contact, conduct for God's children. And that's not at all what the Apostle Paul is arguing in Romans 6 and 7. In fact, what the Apostle Paul is arguing in the, in the context of those verses is that the, the child of God has an even higher standard of living because we're under grace, not because, because we are not under law. And understand why this is the case, why the child of God, child of God in the new covenant has a higher standard of living than those living under the old covenant. We've got to back up just a little bit and understand the role of the law in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In Exodus chapter 19, the chapter right before the Ten Commandments, the Lord proposes an agreement with the children of Israel. Look with me. It's one page back. So look with me at verse, verse 4 of Exodus chapter 19. Ye have seen, this is the Lord speaking, Ye have seen what I did unto the Egyptians, and how I bear you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then, shall ye, then ye shall be a particular treasure, or a peculiar treasure, unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So the Lord proposes this agreement with the children of Israel that He be their God, that they be His people, and that if they obey Him, that He will bless them. And if, he, if they disobey Him, then He will curse them. In verse 8, we see their response to this proposal. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. They have agreed in principle to this agreement with God. They have said, We will keep your commandments, we will be your people, and you will be our God. And what immediately follows that agreement is the giving of the law in Exodus chapter, or beginning in Exodus chapter 20. And so what we find is that the law is really the basis of this covenant agreement between Israel and God. It is the terms of the agreement found in chapter 19. The law is the terms of the agreement between Israel and God. And we call that sometimes the Mosaic covenant or other, otherwise called the Old covenant. Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Old Covenant. And this is really the basis of how God deals with the children of Israel throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And what you need to understand is that this, what, what happens in Exodus chapter 19, is extremely important if you are to understand how God deals with his people in the Old Testament. The blessings of God upon Israel, the cursings of God upon Israel, all are traced back here to this agreement in Exodus chapter 19 where they said, we will be your people and you will be our God. We will obey you, you will bless us. We, if we disobey you, you will curse us. That, that is the agreement that they come to and that is the basis of God's dealing with in the Old Testament. But the problem is, is that we begin to move through the Old Testament. We see that they didn't keep the, they didn't keep the law. That over and over again, perpetually almost, they broke the law. And what we find is that the Old Covenant, that the law is an inadequate basis for the relationship between God and God's people. It is, it, is, it is the ground of what is going to be a very frustrating relationship for not only God but for His people. They are not going to be blessed and He's not going to be happy with His people. So the Old Covenant is really an inadequate basis of the relationship between God and Israel. So what we find is in Jeremiah chapter 31, the Lord promises to replace the Old Covenant, to replace the Old Covenant with what he calls here in Jeremiah 31, the New Covenant. 
And we see this in uh, verses 31 to 33. We'll read these verses because they're very, very important. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. So the problem with the old covenant is outlined for us right here. It's that they break the covenant. The inadequacy of the old covenant was not on God's part. God was faithful to his people, but the people were not faithful to God. And so God says, I'm going to solve this problem. And what I'm going to do in the new covenant is I am going to fix the heart of the matter, and that is the heart of God's people. Now, when we move into the New Testament, we see Jesus. And Jesus comes onto the scene to establish this new covenant that we are told about in Jeremiah chapter 31. And we find Jesus who kept the law. He fulfilled the law. And, and to say that he kept the law and to fulfill the law are two different things. They, they mean two distinct things. He kept the law in every point. But the fact that he fulfilled the law meant that the law pointed to him. You remember in, is it, uh, uh, it I know it's in the Gospel of Luke somewhere, in one of those la latter chapters, where Jesus is walking on the road to Emmaus with the two men after the resurrection of Christ. They don't know that Christ is resurrected, but this is after Christ is resurrected. And they are sad. And the Lord opens, the Lord Jesus opens the scriptures, and what does it say? It says, beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded the scriptures concerning himself. What that means is that the law talked about Jesus. The law provided for the Messiah, the new covenant. If you'll think about that for a little bit, it'll bless your heart. Because back there when the Lord was establishing that old covenant, He was already aware of the fact that His people would break the covenant. And He was already providing the basis for the Messiah who would establish a new covenant. He's a, he's a great God. He's a gracious, gracious God. But what we find in Jesus is that He establishes a new covenant by shedding His blood. And when He establishes a new covenant, He abolishes the old covenant. The old covenant vanishes away according to Hebrews chapter, eight, eight, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. So then what connection does the law have with the new covenant? We are not under Moses anymore. We're under Jesus. So what does Jesus say? Well, would it shock you that in the Gospels when Jesus teaches, He doesn't deviate from the law all that much. He doesn't disparage the law. But in fact, His teachings elevate the law. I mean, this is what he said in Matthew chapter, uh, chapter 5. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Do you see what Jesus did there? He took the law which regulated the outward, uh, the outward appearance that thou shalt not commit adultery, an outward action, and he applied it to the heart. He said, we're going to go deeper. He elevated the law. He transformed the law from its original purpose. Now the law, now the new covenant, the, the standard is higher. It's not like it was under the old covenant. It's higher. It's greater. It's more significant. It reaches deeper into the heart of man. But if God's people couldn't keep the old covenant, how are they going to keep this higher standard in the new covenant? Well, 
first of all, the basis of the new covenant is not in our keeping of the law in the new covenant. It's based on the one who did keep the law and fulfilled the law in every point. The blessings of God in the, under the new covenant are unconditional. They're unconditional be, because the conditions have been satisfied in the one who kept the law. But nevertheless, under the new covenant, obedience is still expected. So how then are, are God's people who couldn't keep the law under the old covenant going to keep the commandments of God under the new covenant? Well, you remember back in Jeremiah 31, God said He was going to fix the problem? Well, that's exactly what He did in the new covenant. Because what, the, what that verse prophesies of is the time when the Spirit of God would be placed inside of our heart. And He would take up residence in our heart. And thereby, we receive a divine enablement that they did not receive under the old covenant. We are able to do something greater than they who participated in the old covenant. And this is what Paul says in Romans chapter 8 to sum up these matters. He said, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. That is the law of Moses. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. We can fulfill the righteousness of the law through the power of the Spirit, because we have, we have access to a divine enablement through the Spirit of God. So now when we consider the Ten Commandments, the law, we're not under law. We're under grace. But we can take the Ten Commandments, we can take the law, and we can see the principles behind them. And we can, of course, apply these. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. We can certainly apply that to our lives. But we don't just apply it to the outward part of our life, but we apply it to the inward. We look at the heart and we ask ourselves, is my heart right with God? So I want us to look at this first commandment in these first three verses. And I want us to consider what we can learn about our relationship with God from this first commandment, thou shalt have no other gods before me. I want you to see first of all in verse number 1, again of Exodus 20, that the Lord asserts His authority over His people. He asserts His authority over His people. In verse 1, And God spake all these words, saying... Now stop right there. What we have to do here is we have to envision the scene. We, we, we really have to step into the scene and act as though we were there on that day. As we've already mentioned in the previous chapter, the people of Israel have agreed to this covenant with God. And in agreeing with this covenant, the Lord tells Moses to prepare the people... For on the third day, the Lord is going to come down on Mount Sinai and He's going to speak to His people. So Moses sanctifies and prepares the people. They erect a, a, a wall, a, a structure, a fence around the, uh, the border of Mount Sinai so that people would not uh, uh, go up the mountain when the Lord came down. And on the third day, the Lord comes down. He descends upon the mountain. And in verse 1, He begins to speak. Notice in verse number 1, it is God that is speaking. He is not speaking through a mediator here, but He is directly speaking to His people. Right. This is kind of a rare occurrence. And then we find, look, look with me in verses 17 to 20 of, of chapter 19. This is how it is described when the Lord comes down. Moses brought forth the people out of the camp to meet with God. They stood at the nether part of the mount. And Mount Sinai was altogether on a smoke because the Lord descended upon a, in, a fi, in fire. And the smoke thereof ascended as the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mount quaked greatly. 
When the voice of the trumpet sounded loud, long and waxed louder and louder, Moses spake and God answered him by a voice. So you see, you see what's going on here. The Lord descends. These people are gathered around this mountain. And it's, it's almost like they're standing at the base of a volcano. I mean, this thing looks like it's about to erupt. And not only that, but there's thunder and there's lightning. And I imagine that the thunder and the lightning that is, that is going on here makes our Fourth of, Fourth of July fireworks show look like child's play. I mean, this is the Lord we're talking about. And we see after the Lord speaks in verse number 1, this is their reaction in chapter 20, verses 18 to 19. All the people saw the thunderings and the lightnings and the noise of the trumpet, the mountain smoking, and when the people saw it, they removed and stood far off, and, and they said unto Moses, Speak thou with us, and we will hear, but let not God speak with us, lest we die. Now you've got to see that. You've got to be there. And you've got to understand what they are saying. They are saying this is a little, little bit too great for us. This is a little bit too much for us. To be in the presence of God is to die. And truly that is the case. But what's going on here is that this has provoked the people to wrath, or to, to fear rather. They have seen God for who He is. He is awesome. He is great. He is almighty. He is the creator. He is the sovereign one. And they are moved to great fear. And the importance of this is that before the people ever jump into the commandments, they need to know whose commandments they are. This is not some pathetic God. This is not some puny, puny God. But this is the creator of the universe. This is the Lord of the universe. This is the sovereign one, the omnipotent one. Uh, he is Jehovah God. This, this is God that we are speaking of. And it is He who comes down on this mountain and asserts His authority over them. And it would do us well to know who we are in a relationship with tonight. We are not talking about our therapist. We are not talking about the big man upstairs. We are talking about Almighty God. This is not the grandfatherly figure that, that our world portrays God, God as. This is Jehovah God. He is the creator of the universe. He is your creator. He is the Lord of this universe. He is the sovereign one. He is omnipotent and almighty. He is God and we are not. And it is He, the Lord God, the creator, who asserts His authority over us. And we will never appreciate our duty to the Lord until we realize who He is. Uh, it is only when we know Him and we fear Him greatly that we realize that He has every right to assert His authority over every aspect of our life. But I want you to see that not only does He assert His authority over His people, but He also confirms His love for them in verse number 2. I am the Lord, God, Lord thy God, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. The Lord reminds them that He is the one that brought them uh, out of slavery from the nation of, of Israel, this, or nation of Egypt. And this is to confirm that He loves them, that he, is, that he is for them. And though the Lord has every right to assert His authority over them, He does not do so from the posture of a cruel tyrant, but He does so from the posture of a loving father. And this is an important point because... What we need to understand is that the law was not what caused God to favor the nation of Israel in the first place. He didn't love them because they were morally superior to the nations around them. He simply loved them. And He used His, his grace was the basis of their relationship, not law-keeping. 
His grace was the basis of that relationship. The Lord did not deliver them from Egypt because they kept the law or because He knew they would keep the law. He delivered them from Egypt simply because He loved them. And it was only after they were delivered from Egypt that God gave them the law. And the principle is is that relationship precedes rules. Relationship precedes rules. This is, of course, not not only true for the nation of Israel, but it's true for us as well. The reason that we have a relationship with God is not because we keep the law, because we're good people. It's because, because He's gracious, because He's merciful, merciful to us. And if you're here and trying to do good, trying to keep law as a way of pleasing God, but you haven't you haven't entered into that relationship with God through the person and work of Jesus Christ, you're doing it wrong. He wants a relationship with you, but once he gets that relationship, he then asserts his authority in a loving way over you. It is then after we have that relationship that our conduct can be regulated by the Word of God, uh, by the Word of God in a way that pleases, pleases God. But that relationship must be built on the basis and the foundation of faith, or else it does not please him, but in fact angers him. And another trap that we must be careful of not of falling into is that if we don't keep his commandments, then he'll love us, he'll love us less. And that's, that's not true. Our, commandment key, our, our keeping of the commandments of God is not an indication of his love for us or, his, or our acceptance before him, but it is an indication of our love for him. You see, no good Christian in, uh, uh, complains of the all-encompassing authority of God over every part of our life. Because when you understand that the Lord loves you and what He did to prove that love for you, there's no way you can complain about His authority over your life. Who am I to withhold an aspect of my life from His authority when He sent His Son to die for me? Uh, how can I, who has been delivered from such great sin and been delivered into great eternal life, say, Lord, you can't have that, you can't have that part of my life. And we, it is when we understand how much He loves us and how great He has proved His love for us that we say, whatever it is, whatever it is, Lord, I will do. He loves us. But I want you to think about something else. If He's proved His love for us in such a magnificent way, if He has delivered us from sin, delivered us from oppression, just like He did the Israelites from Egyptian bondage, has He really delivered us to then only oppress us? No, of course not. That's a preposterous notion. The Lord did not deliver Israel from Egyptian bondage so that He could then oppress them in the wilderness and put them into the bondage of the law. It goes to show, show why he gave the law in the first place. The law was not meant to oppress the people of God, but was given for their benefit. If they kept the law, this was going to, a, going to lead to a peaceful and a joyful existence. If they didn't keep the law, this was going to, to lead to a society that was filled with violence and filled with hate and, and filled with, uh, with all kinds of manner unruly unruly behavior. So the Lord gave them the law as a... It's really a gracious gift. This is not a means to oppress His people, but, uh, but, but a way to be gracious to His people, to help them. When the Lord commands us to do something, it's not to hurt us. The Lord does not have, He does not intend to hurt us. He is, he is, he is for His glory, first and foremost, but He is for our good. The commandments in the Word of God, if you will obey them, 
they will not hurt you. They will, they will only help you. And so we see the Lord asserts His authority over His people. We see the Lord confirms His love for His people. We see finally that the Lord demands exclusivity from His people. Verse number 3, Thou shalt have no other gods before Me. Now there are two ways that one might interpret this, this command. The first is that God is commanding His people to make Him the priority in their lives. Now, we, when we talk in terms of prioritization, we use the language of before. Like I might tell my son, pick up the toys before you go outside. The clear indication is, is you need to prioritize what I'm telling you to do before you go outside and play. <clears throat> and some have assumed that what the Lord is saying here in verse number 3 is that the Lord needs to be the priority in your life. And certainly, that application is true. That's affirmed by other scripture, but that's not what the Lord is saying here in Exodus chapter 20 verse 3. Uh, and in fact, when you apply that to other gods, you see how ridiculous it is. God's not saying that I need to be the priority over other gods. That's a ridiculous notion. There are no other gods. And what he is saying here is that you should bring no other gods before my presence, before me. And we see a scriptural example of someone blatantly doing this. Turn with me to 2 Kings chapter 21 to see a violation of this commandment. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 and 2, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. In verse 2, he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. So we're introduced here to a new king, Manasseh. And Manasseh was one of the worst kings in Judah's history. And we immediately begin to see a mass, a, a Manasseh, his accomplishments, uh, uh, if you want to call them that, uh, really caused him to earn that reputation as one of the worst kings in their history. Look at verses 3 to 6 where we get a laundry list of the accomplishments of Manasseh. For he built up again the high places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed. He reared up altars for Baal made a grove as did Ahab king of Israel, worshipped all the hosts of heaven, served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said, In the Jerusalem will I put my name. He built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his son pass through the fire and observe times and used enchantments and dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to, to anger." So what we see here is Manasseh, he built altars to false god. We see he performed pagan rituals with his children and with others. And then we see in verse number 7 a clear violation of the first commandment. And he set a graven image of the grove that he had made in the house, of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son, In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all tribes of Israel, will I put my name forever. Do you see what Manasseh has done there? He has taken an idol, he has taken an image, and he has put it in the house of God, the temple. And what a brazen violation this is of the first commandment. This is, this is precisely the type of thing that the Lord God prohibits, prohibits in the first commandment. To not bring any false gods into my presence. Now before we start wiping our hands, because we're so clean from this first commandment, let me remind you what we said earlier, that the new covenant elevates the law. Because now we have God living inside of us. So just as Manasseh brought an idol into the house of God, we 
are the temple of the Holy Ghost. And so when there is a, an idol in our heart, it is as blatant and obvious to the Lord as when Manasseh brought that altar into the house of God. And we have to ask the question here, what qualifies as a God? What qualifies as a God? Well, I think to answer that question, we, we need to ask, what is our responsibility and our relationship to be to the one true God? And when we find that, then we can see when we begin to replace God in that way, then we find out what a false God is. And very simply, we are to fear God. We are to love God. And we are to trust God above all else. We're to fear Him. We are to trust Him. We're to love Him. So a false God is really, it can really can be anything. Anything that robs God of our fear, that robs God of our trust, that robs God of our love. So when you say, boy, if I had a little bit more money, I'd be happier, you have an idol. And when you fear public opinion, and public opinion uh, causes you, influences you to change the music you listen to, or the clothes you wear, the things that you do, you're worshiping a false god. And when the imperatives that you obey come from some other voice in your head beside the Spirit of God, you have another God. And you'll notice that in your life that false gods take company with one another. They advertise for each other. One false god leads to another false god. So when you fear what your peers think of you, you'll begin to let them establish the standard for your life and your lifestyle. And when you do that, you'll then turn to the false god of mammon to help you elevate your lifestyle. You see how a false god leads to another false god before you know it. You've robbed God of all fear, all trust, and all, all love. And idolatry is as much a problem in our modern society as it was in Manasseh's day. And I would suggest to you today that, that even for the child of God, participating in idolatry is something that we must be careful of. We must be careful not to follow the world in their pursuit after one false god, another false god, and another false god as they seek to fill that longing that God has placed in their heart for them. And we know this because the New Testament tells us to watch out for false idols. This is what John tells us in the conclusion of 1 John. Little children, keep yourself from idols. The potential for, for idol keeping is, is, is alive and well even in the hearts of God's children. And so in conclusion, I want us to think about the, the first commandment, not only negatively as a prohibition from, uh, from false gods, but positively as a call to arms. Because we are to rid ourselves from all idols. Kick out any idol that is residing in your heart. Give the Spirit of God free reign to search and to reveal any idols that are residing in your heart. And when they are revealed, violently kick them out. Do not let those idols think that they have a welcome home in your heart. And then stand on guard. Keep your eyes open. Keep your ears attentive to the possibility of any idols coming in to your life. And finally, let, re let me remind you of, of one day when every person will acknowledge that there are no other gods, yeah. that he and he alone is God. And on that day and forevermore, there will be no other gods before him. Amen.